0: So our second reading for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with the 21st verse. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while while you are on the way to court with him where your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members... Than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again you have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Here ends our reading. And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today we get... Yet one more installment of our look at that famous chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount. I know you're excited. I can feel it in the air because this is the good stuff. A rock star passage. It's like that movie Almost Famous where we get to tag along as Jesus, the rock star, and his groupies. Now it's true you could be sleeping in this morning. You could be watching some Sunday news program. But who honestly these days wants to actually watch the news? (laughs) I mean, do you really need to hear more about the hysteria over coronavirus? Especially since here, we get the Sermon on the Mount. I think we need to cue the deacons to play ECDC Back in Black or some other pump-up song on the sound system. You've heard it said to those of ancient times that going to church was boring, but I say to you, church is awesome. You've heard it said to those of ancient times that Boston is the hub of the universe, but I say to you that Houston is also pretty darn cool. <laughs> Today we get to consider this famous set of the so-called antitheses. Jesus compares what the law of old says to what he is saying now. He famously updates the law for Christians and lays out a new ethic. How exciting. This passage is the preeminent passage that considers Jesus' relationship to the Mosaic Law. It's a crucial passage in our understanding of Christianity and its relationship with Judaism. It's an important topic, and for, a whole, and for a whole host of reasons, it also is one that is fraught with difficulties. Whether you realize it or not, we're entering a minefield here now. At first glance, these lines from Matthew 5 would hardly seem like an epic minefield. But it is the implication of these lines and the, way and the way they have constructed the relationship between Christianity and Judaism that makes them so potentially problematic. The implication of these verses is that Jesus and his teachings supersede the Mosaic Law. You have the old dispensation of Judaism and then the new and improved dispensation of Christianity, the Old Covenant or Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible, and now the New Covenant or the New Testament for Christians and the whole of the world. Can you see any potential issues lurking there? Think back to the Protestant Reformation. Now, for some of you, I know that was before you were born. (laughs) Think back to that time 500 years ago. The catalyst of the Reformation was, of course, that great Christian theologian Martin Luther. If you know anything about Luther's theology, you know that the key distinction he made was between the law and the gospel. You had the law made first by those legalistic Jews, represented by the New Testament depiction of the Pharisees, and then you had the glorious gospel of Jesus, which set everyone free from bondage. The vengeful God of the Old Testament was replaced by the loving God of the new. Sound familiar? Luther lays this out most, most clearly in his famous essay on Christian freedom, which he wrote in 1521. Luther compares the strict, outdated legalism of the Jews with the ossified Christian legalism of the Roman Catholic Church of his day. There is, of course, one small, tiny, little problem with Lutheranist theology. It was rife with anti-Semitism. Luther was one of the great anti-Semites of the Western tradition. His writings, and particularly the writings that he penned later in his life, and I'm not joking here, were regularly used by Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich to justify not just legal discrimination against Jews in Germany, but also the Holocaust itself. You can draw a direct line between Martin Luther and his writings and Auschwitz. And it was founded on this doctrine of supersessionism, that the gospel supersedes the outdated Mosaic law. If you spend any time reading the great German biblical scholars of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, their writings and their theories are littered with anti-Semitic tropes. Here's one example. When scholars have wrestled with Jesus' relationship to the Mosaic law, they have cited this very passage, among others, to show that Jesus embraced the moral law of the Torah while ditching the cultic law. I'm not sure if you've heard that one before. Jesus lifted up the great moral truths of Judaism while rejecting the outdated temple cult and its associated rituals. But this line of reasoning, while tempting for Christians to embrace, is anachronistic and doesn't actually reflect any of the evidence we have. No Jew of the first century would see, would see a distinction between the cultic laws or the dietary laws and the moral laws of the Hebrew Bible. They were all one and the same. They were all Torah. The distinction that is made between the moral and cultic law is a contemporary one and one that likely would have made very little sense to a Jew in the first century, regardless of how they might have felt about the bureaucracy of the temple or how the temple might have been, might, might have been being abused. When Jesus cleared the money changers from the courtyard of the temple, he was not rejecting the temple itself. He was rejecting how the temple cult was being used to profit off pilgrims from other lands, most of whom had sacrificed a lot to be there. When Jesus said the temple would be torn down, he was either predicting correctly that the Romans would destroy the temple or encouraging new interpretations of what the temple might mean for his age. The book of Acts tells us that Jesus his early followers. They continued to go to the temple and worship at the temple after Jesus' death and resurrection. If they rejected the temple cult altogether, they would not have done that. A similar thing could be said about the Mosaic Law. It's often said that Jesus undermined the law or dismissed its importance after its appearing. We hear this type of reasoning all the time. The law doesn't apply to Christians, and as evidence, people cite Jesus' disputes with with the Pharisees and others over the Sabbath dietary laws, among other things. But against this logic, you have to realize that the single most important dispute of the early church after Jesus died was over the law and the keeping of the law. Paul's letter and the book of Acts are explicit about how intense this debate over the law was. If Jesus had rejected the law, there there would not have been grounds for this epic early church dispute. Think about that. The early church was torn over one issue more than anything else, the meaning of the law. How would that have happened if Jesus and his teachings had superseded the Mosaic law. No, the issue was that those who were becoming followers of Jesus after his death were Gentiles, and the early church had to figure out whether it was possible to be a follower of Jesus and not keep the Mosaic law. The law was seen as a good thing. The question is whether it had to be followed by everyone, and if so, what that might look like. This trap of biblical scholars dismissing the importance of the law even applies to liberal biblical scholars today. This past week, I was reading John Meyer's monumental study of Jesus in the Mosaic Law. In one choice passage, Meyer unloads on his fellow biblical scholars who are in the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar were those folks who reopened the quest for the historical Jesus in the 1980s. Meyer points out how these scholars claim to respect Jesus' Judaism, and then they turn around and they label him as a teacher of wisdom or a traveling cynic. As Meyer demonstrates, the picture of Jesus that emerges from the Jesus Seminar is more focused on creating a palatable Jesus for good liberals in the late 20th century than on being true to Jesus' Judaism. All good food for thought, especially as we consider this passage for today. So as I said, the stakes are high when we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. What are we supposed to do with these iconic lines? How do we not fall into the trap that leads to an implicit anti-Semitism? The first thing we have to do is recognize that these verses are the work of the evangelist Matthew. Matthew wrote these lines. They did not come straight from the mouth of Jesus. We already know that Matthew almost certainly composed his gospel using the gospel of Mark and a list of Jesus' sayings, commonly referred to as Q. Unlike Luke, who uses those same sources... Matthew arranges the teachings of Jesus into five distinct speeches, the Sermon on the Mount being the most famous of which. And in particular, the phrasing that Matthew uses, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, is a Matthean construction. That phrasing comes up nowhere else, even when Luke uses similar passages. And while those lines might not make sense coming from the mouth of Jesus, they actually make quite a bit of sense coming from the pen of Matthew, at least as much as scholars can reconstruct the historical situation that led to the writing of the Gospel of Matthew. Unlike other Gospels, Matthew is the one that is most steeped in Judaism. When Mark makes certain errors about uh, about Jewish practice and Palestinian geography, which he does, Matthew then fixes those errors when he copies those relevant portions in his Gospel. He knows a lot more about Judaism than Mark did. Matthew also cites far more passages in the Hebrew Bible than any other evangelist. The vast majority of scholars date the Gospel of Matthew to the mid-80s of the Common Era, or roughly 50 years after Jesus' death. In other words, Matthew was writing at a time after the destruction of the Temple by the Romans in the year 70, and at the same time as the rise of what became rabbinic Judaism. It was around this time when the leaders of this new rabbinic, when the leaders of this new rabbinic movement agreed to formally expel Christians from their synagogues and included them on, a list, on the list of banned people. This is a highly contentious time that Matthew, in which Matthew was writing. And so this was particularly contentious for Matthew, who was himself likely raised as an observant Jew. How was he supposed to defend his discipleship of Jesus against those Jews who rejected Jesus? It's also likely that those in his congregation were very much like him, i.e., people who considered themselves Jewish, but who saw Jesus as the Messiah. In the midst of this tense atmosphere, Matthew had to honor the Hebrew Bible, while also showing how following Jesus was superior to, gro- to the growing rabbinic movement at the same time that was rejecting Christians. In this context, our passage for today makes perfect sense. Just before this passage, we have the lines, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Importantly, that line only appears in Matthew. Following on that, Matthew composes these famous antitheses. You've heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you. You can see Matthew straddling this careful line. He wants to convince the Jews in his congregation that they are good Jews, while showing that they are superior to the rabbinic movement that at the same time is rejecting them. Mark, Luke, and John don't have these lines. Their context is different. But for Matthew, they matter. And it's crucial that we, however, do not read too much into these lines and therefore fall into some trap of supersessionism. So where exactly does that leave us? What do we say about Jesus and the law, and what relevance do these iconic verses have for us today? Thankfully, there's some excellent scholarship that can help us. The first century was a time of great diversity within Judaism. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the followers of John the Baptist, the earlier followers of Jesus, among others, carried on lively debates about the nature and future of the faith. All of these groups honored the importance of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But the Torah was far from set in stone. It was debated and interpreted in different ways by different groups. Again, this is long before the writing of the Mishnah or the Talmud. It's important to note that Torah literally means law, but it also means instruction or teaching. The Torah includes narrative, cultic law, civic laws, and moral instructions. What it meant to walk in the way of God was open to discussion. And the New Testament contains various passages where Jesus debated the meaning of Torah with others. When Jesus discussed the Sabbath, for instance, he put Sabbath observance in the context of other sacred scriptures. When scholars have examined each of Jesus' statements about Torah observance, in only one case does it seem that he went against what the Torah instructed. And that was when he said that the dead should bury their own dead. And even that passage is open to debate. The picture that emerges of Jesus is of a rabbi schooled in the Torah who had his own vision for what following God included. He emphasized care for those on the margins and could cite any number of passages in the Hebrew Bible and the Torah that supported his position. E.P. Sanders, in his landmark book, Jesus and Judaism, argues that the one overriding concern for Jesus was the coming eschaton, the coming reign of God that was already beginning. It was in this context that he interpreted the Torah, according to Sanders. We have to interpret Jesus' Torah interpretations in light of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. So, when Jesus says in our passage for today that we should not be angry with one another and should be reconciled with one another before taking our offering to the temple, he's clearly not expecting all of his followers never to be angry. He's also not expecting that we can suddenly be reconciled with everyone. That's not realistic. Instead, according to Sanders, Jesus is saying that in the kingdom of God, there will be no more anger, and that everyone will be reconciled. He's casting a vision that is broader than our interpretations, that that was broader than than other interpretations of the Torah for his day. Similarly, when he says that there will be no divorce, he's not claiming that every marriage is perfect, or that every marriage will always last. That, as we all know, is neither possible nor advisable. Instead, Jesus is saying that in the reign of God, marriages will be indissoluble and there won't be any desire to look lustfully outside of a marriage. It's about a future vision. When he says that Christians need not make any more oaths, he's not expecting that to happen immediately. The ancient world depended on oaths to seal contracts among people. He is saying that in the kingdom of God, merely saying yes or no will be sufficient for interpersonal relationships. Again and again, in Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God, The focus on Torah observance emphasizes our idealized relationships with others. It's about compassion, not anger. Reconciliation, not vengeance. Commitment and love, not argument and division. Honesty and integrity, not contracts and conditions. In the kingdom of God, the marginalized aren't just cared for, they are given pride of place. Material needs are provided for out of the plenty of the world. It's a compelling vision the kingdom of God, and one that is rooted, deeply rooted, in the Hebrew Bible and the Torah, the instruction of God. People might call Jesus unrealistic or overly idealistic, but if you believe in the kingdom of God, if you can catch a glimpse of it, it can draw us into new life. It can beckon us into a new way of being amid the ambiguities, the true ambiguities of this life. And that, in my mind, is the true challenge of Matthew chapter 5, that's a challenge that's placed before all of us today. Even though, we are obno- even though we are not observant Jews, as Jesus was, can his vision inspire us or motivate us? Think about what it would be like if we too prioritized our relationships with other humans over other things, over everything else, perhaps. Think what it would be like if we believed, with Jesus, that the end time really was in-breaking, and that the kingdom of God was at hand. We get so caught up in our to-do lists, our goals, our accomplishments, getting through the day. What if the kingdom of God was actually here? Would those things matter? What would matter most? Our relationships with others. God's priorities and not the priorities that society tells us. Think of how radical that would be. But it can happen. It is happening, even if in small ways. I know each of you strive to figure out what this means, to be inspired by Jesus. That's why you're here. There's the father who tries his best to be a father for his son, even though it's anything but easy. Father and son are very different, and the son blames his father for the rejection he feels in society. But the father is willing to put aside his own hopes for his son to make an effort to support him and to learn to love him in new ways. The relationship matters more than societal expectations. Or there's a social worker who spends his days working with very low-income population. The work is draining and friends wonder why he doesn't take a higher-paying job, a less stressful job. But there's something about helping people in deep need and seeing that transformation, however small, that keeps him going. In his work, he sees a glimpse of Jesus' vision that matters more than the expectations of society. Or there's the teacher who works in a school where many of the students are undocumented and others have to live below the poverty line. The struggles of teaching in that environment go far beyond the normal ups and downs of teaching life. But there are other options, other opportunities that might pay better, but still there's something about that work, the relationships there, that keep that person there. Jesus' interpretations of God's instructions matter. There's the leader of the nonprofit who has donors with whom he disagrees, on many important issues. He worries about giving up part of himself to keep some of his donors happy, but then there's the transformative work that the nonprofit does to change people's hearts and minds. That work can help bring about Jesus' new reality. There's the mid-level executive at an oil company who has qualms about fossil fuels and what they do for the environment, who longs for more meaning in the workplace, but he realizes that every job has trade-offs, and he tries his best to to be the best colleague and force for good in the company that he can be the kingdom of god can start there i could go on and on all around us both here and elsewhere there are people trying to live into the kingdom of god trying to prioritize relationships over society's goals people who invest in their intimate relationships who work to find reconciliation and move beyond anger who try to be true to their word this is matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 37 They don't do it for the rewards they might find here. They do it because somewhere deep down they feel that this is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means to follow God's instructions, God's Torah, as a follower of Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a good Jew. He was an interpreter of the Torah. (coughs) Jesus didn't preach that the Torah didn't matter or was superseded. He taught that to follow God's instructions meant to live into the kingdom of God as laid out in the Torah, and to prioritize our relationships around us. We hear that message coming to us, even beneath the complicated packaging of Matthew 5. And more importantly, we hear it in our hearts. And let us continue to be open to it. And in so doing, let us be inspired by this vision rooted in Judaism I'm convinced that that's what Jesus would want us to do.